0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Thank you to everyone who made my latest novel, Only the Dead, number one on the New York Times bestsellers list in hardcover, combined ebook, and audio. Sincerely appreciated. My guest today, annie jacobson she is a pulitzer prize finalist new york times best-selling author of area 51 operation paperclip the pentagon's brain phenomena surprise kill vanish and first platoon she also writes and produces television including the jack ryan series and clarice on cbs now without further ado annie jacobson Annie, thank you so much for doing this. This is awesome. And so I have all your books right oh my here. Goodness. And I know we are never going to get through all the questions that I have for you. We might not even make it through a page of all these. That's just how it goes sometimes when uh, when I'm so interested in everything that someone has done. But uh, what was really cool was like two years ago uh, when I was on the East Coast and I was writing and, uh, and you direct messaged me and you're like, it looks like you are at and you knew exactly where I was based on a picture that had almost no information in it except for like a tree in the background and a a bush over here and maybe the corner of a little bit of of the water and uh, you knew exactly where I was.
1: I did, and that is. And then you know I'm trained well. That's it you know, by my sources, right? <laughs> they have taught me how to read documents and also how to conduct surveillance, whether I'm in a place or looking at where someone else is. So
0: that was pretty and that cool, was fun
1: because <laughs> you were literally across the the ocean, kind of across yeah. the area from. You were on an island across yep. from where I grew up. In the summers.
0: Yep. And I could, I, if you were over there at the time, I could have seen you with binoculars. It was uh, it's that close. It is, yep. that, it's, that was, that was really cool. Um, but before I get into all this amazing work, uh, how did all this start for you? Um, did you always know you wanted to write? Did you always, did you want to go into mm-hmm. journalism? Did you, how did all this start for you? I went
1: to boarding school age 15 with a typewriter absolutely convinced at that young age that I was going to write the great American novel and then flash forward, you know, 20 years. And and there was no great American novel and there was no nothing, right? I mean, so I came into my success as a journalist very late in life and I'm super grateful for that. But the key was I had a mentor uh, at the time, and I had a you know a little my our firstborn son Finley, little baby in arms, and like oh my god, I can't afford to not be, you know, earning earning a proper living as a failed novelist, <laughs> and so I asked my mentor if I should give up writing, and she said to me the something that has stayed with me. Forever, And I thank her in the back of all of my books. She said, Annie, stop making shit up. It's the truth that matters. And I was like, what does that even mean? And she said, go be a journalist.
0: Huh. And there you have it. So how did it, how did that path into journalism start? Did you go from there? Or what did you do?
1: Yeah, you know, I was. I mean, you just kind of start at the bottom, as you know. You always start on the bottom rung. It's important. You mm. want to know how to do all the jobs and sweep the floor and make the coffee. Exactly. And then I worked my way up fast because I suddenly had kind of found my place. And another thing that mentor said to me was, "You have trouble following direction," <laughs> you know, and and like. I mean, you're in the military, I was an athlete. And like, if you put me on a sports team, I'm really good at following direction. But it had been many years, you know, since I was doing that. And I had kind of lost the sense that it's really important to follow direction. And that is what, as a journalist, an editor gives you, right? If you're working in, you know, as a reporter, you're working with your your editor. And if you're writing books, you're working with an editor. And so therefore you're following their direction. They're saying, good idea, bad idea, try this, lose that. And you have to kind of say, got it, you know, not like, no, 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 I have a better idea. And I found that really important in developing my skills.
0: And did you write uh, novels first that you still have on a hard drive somewhere or in that, in that uh, cabinet behind you?
1: (laughs) I do. I do. But it was a little bit more like, um, Jack Nicholson and the shining, you know what I mean? Like where you kind of write one thing over and over and over again. Okay. Um, that was me. I, I just hadn't found my way. You know, now I write fiction, I write television. Right. And so, so it kind of gets your yaya's out in a different way. But honestly, my true love is, is reporting is, is, is long form journalism is having the opportunity and the privilege because that's what it is to sit with extraordinary people mm-hmm. who have done extraordinary things because I write about war and weapons and national security and secrets. And I find the people in this world are just, they are so intellectually complex and physically advanced and making things happen in their mind and, you know, putting themselves so far out there on the tree limbs. And to be able to sit with them and mine their process, their talents, their thinking, their philosophy, and then ultimately their story, which becomes plot, that is the joy. I love that process. And when you're writing books like I do, you, it's a, you're interweaving the interviews with the writing. You know, So you're doing interviews and coming back and writing. And, and so it's this incredible journey.
0: Yeah. It really is. Well, I heard for the great American novel, one needs to go to Paris and live in Paris. I'm not sure if you if you attempted that or not. Maybe it's still out there. Maybe you still need to go to Paris for a few years and uh, and pull that typewriter back out. Uh,
1: Or the or the island that you were typing on because you do a great job. And congratulations, by the way, you know, I just absolutely love watching your success seeing your success seeing how prolific you are um seeing you you know dodge criticism <laughs> and, and and embrace you know in, it's kind of like the corny expression go where the love is you yeah. know what i mean you got to go where people want to read you and want to watch you and that's awesome
0: oh, and good thank for you, you. I yeah. appreciate that. yeah, some of those negatives. I like to figure out how to turn those negatives into a positive in a way that's uh, fun for everybody and diffuses it a little bit like uh, the criticism of the show from uh, from certain segments. and that's uh, you know it's just it's just there's just a way to way to deal with it probably that uh, that turns it into a positive and, and makes it a little more fun and maybe helps other people deal with some criticism, especially in this uh, this world of, of social media where it's so easy for someone mm-hmm. to sling those arrows from behind that computer screen.
1: Well, I think you do it really well because you just continue to write. I mean, yeah. writers write, that's so it. just keep writing, that's you know. It. And and you could you could you could you know say outperform them or whatever you know what however you want to try and perceive it in your mind. But that's what you do. You just keep going because I do think some people get destroyed by criticism. I've seen it happen. Yeah, and it's it, wow, that's a tragedy for them. You know, never yeah. mind. I I got some great advice from a a writer, he was a Vietnam um, person, former, you know, bought there and became a grief counselor of all things. An amazing man named John James. And he once gave me the best advice ever I will share with you, which is he said, Annie, whenever you're writing or speaking or, you know, because he wrote books and lectured and whatnot. And he said, go into it thinking 50% of the people like me and 50% dislike me and I will never change that equation. There it is. And it's it's a real thing to live by because then you're just right on the balance beam in the middle.
0: Yeah, but I mean, you don't wanna get, get uh, sidetracked from doing what you love because uh, someone uh, anonymous person just Keeps hitting you with some direct messages or some comments in your social media or whatever it is. It just mm-hmm. it's uh it's it's so easy. Whatever that is about the 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 human condition or whatever it is that draws us to pay attention to that criticism, even if it's for uh, a minute or a ten minutes or a day or if it sits with you for a little longer. Uh, it it, it 1985 as an author you never would have seen. Oh. 70 80 90 percent of the things that you can see today even when you're trying to avoid them and not look at them like for me I try to use social media as a way to say thank you to people who yes. took a risk on me <laughs> as an author and I try to get in there at, you know, at night and hit that heart button and say thank you so much sincerely appreciate that and uh, but then else that means that I will also see those negative ones and those people that are just throwing those spears and those barbs and those arrows whereas let's say if it was 1985 1995 you never would have seen any of those things because if someone was was going to write a letter going to tell you they had to write a letter to your editor essentially and they'd have to find the address of simon and schuster and they'd have to address the envelope and put the stamp on and write the letter and put it in the envelope and take it to the mailbox it would have to get there it'd have to go to the mailroom, maybe up to an assistant editor maybe uh, and then possibly to the editor's desk who would read the first sentence maybe and then throw it in the trash and you'd never even know but today you see all of those things if you mm-hmm. are engaged at all on the social yeah. channels. And that's just that's just part of it. That's part of the double edge of being able to say thank you and being able to build an audience on those platforms that authors couldn't have done back in 75, 85, 95, even 2005. Uh, it's just part of how part of how it goes. But uh, in the, in my fourth and fifth novel, I went deep down the rabbit hole doing some research. And uh, in the other ones, uh, I had the research that I did, I was more, wasn't in the realm of the things that you research. It was more like, okay, I'm going to go to Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia Mm. and I'm going to talk to some people. I'm going to see what the terrain is like and uh, what are the smells like? And what is the temperature this time of year? And that sort of thing. Or I'm going to go to Mozambique and I'm going to talk to the, uh, some trackers and I'm going to find out about Chinese mining operations, legal and illegal and the politics. And I'm also going to take pictures of the rocks and the grasses and then the dirt. And I'm going to feel the dirt. I'm going to smell it. Uh, and I'm going to share meals and all that's going to, going to weave into the fabric. of my novel, but in the fourth and fifth, fourth one, I went deep down the rabbit hole as far as bioweapons or (laughs) biodefense research. uh, And I had no touch point with that in the military. And then my fifth one, uh, then I went deep down the rabbit hole as far as quantum computing and artificial intelligence goes. And I kind of felt in those ones like a reporter, like a journalist, because Mm -hmm. I'm trying to interview as many people as I can. And I wanted to ask you about this because my experience was that people that worked in those two realms in particular, um, and I had no touch points in the military with either of these things. This is all post military and I'm talking to a bunch of different people and they'll let's say let's take biodefense research and I'm talking to them and they give a little crumb but they're very secretive about everything else well then I go and talk to somebody else. They also give a tiny little crumb, and then, but it's different than the crumb the other person left. So I talk to all of these people, and uh, I'm also basing my questions off a of foundation of, of research. So I've read the journals and books and whatever else I possibly could to prepare myself for these interviews. But after I started talking to these people, I can take all these crumbs and put them together like a puzzle and connect dots and really think something through. And I was curious if uh, if that's how you approach some of the topics. In these, because you're delving into some areas that uh, either the material is newly declassified after all these years, and there's Freedom of Information Act requests, and and you're piecing together these these puzzles from people who are, have long since passed away, or maybe they're you're talking to their children, or may, and you're putting together these puzzles. Um, and is that is that how you look at it? Is that your experience?
1: Absolutely. I mean. I find with sources, like you were talking about the crumbs, where someone is very measured with what they tell you or sparing. And that is true. I think one of the keys is finding sources who are very generous with their time and who are willing. And I find those for all my books. I have to, like, until I find that one or two or three people, I can't really commit to reporting that book because you need someone Who is willing to do that? Like Billy Waugh, for example, in Surprise, Kill, Vanish. I mean, we just spent so long together. I have his book right
0: here and your book right there. So, yeah, amazing.
1: And like we traveled, you know, we would travel together and you and 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 things would come to him and things would, you know, unearth in terms of memory. Um, And you begin to get on the edge of the story and then that process becomes supported like you said by oh you should talk to this guy and this guy and and i just it's you know all these books later the experience is interestingly similar in that regard that you find people who are comfortable and i always think it's like comfortable with themselves you know and then you find people i used to think that that people were being Withholding from me, or something. and now I just realize it, it just doesn't matter. You know what I mean? If that person isn't going to be a great talker, you know that's okay, and I'm going to move on. And people often say to me, "How do you get so everyone to talk to you?" Well, I don't get everyone. I just am relentless about, you know, asking a hundred people right. for an interview, and if five of them yeah. say yes, it's huge. Yeah, and then yeah. you just you're developing, you know. And 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 the other thing I love is that. All these years later, uh, so many of these people I can go back to and 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 ask their assistance or advice or you know do they know anyone and that's huge I think I mean I'm not a what I would call a gotcha journalist and a lot of people are they but if you also notice I never write about politics I write about POTUS you know the office of the president I write I don't really care I can't care much about the, the current feuds over this and that, because to me, I just have studied history long enough to realize they're always there. You know, this guy hates that president and that okay. guy. So just ignore it because what I'm after is the long arc of national security, the, like the long arc of covert action, yeah. the long arc of weapons development. Because if we look to the past, we can see where I think we can see a little bit of where, we can see a little bit of what's happening now, and then we can begin to make educated or thoughtful, you know, questions about the future and how we wanna deal with that for ourselves and our children.
0: Exactly. I mean, that's why I encourage everyone to get all of your books because they're, they are so important in making decisions in the present for the future, for future generations. Um, because there's wisdom there. And in these, like people go to the back of your books and go to the notes section, they'll see how meticulously researched these books, like right here, this one right here, like all this is notes and, uh, and citing sources. And I mean, that's, it's incredible. Um, but, uh, there's, that's why I think everyone should, should get these because we often do not go back into the pages of history uh, and st- put the requisite time, energy, and effort into studying an issue before making a snap decision, especially in today's day of, of for us, Twitter, and maybe for our children, TikTok. Um, even worse, 15 seconds here or there, and making mm-hmm. a, all of a sudden their opinion on something is based off something that someone else has retweeted or put out there on TikTok or whatever else, and now they've been influenced by that, by someone who also... Did not put the requisite time, energy, and effort into studying the issue, studying the past, uh, and especially right now when we're talking so much about government overreach. And there's so much in the in the news today about uh, these different government agencies. And uh, we go back; we can go back to the 70s and look at the Church Committee and look at the Pike Committee, uh, and, which exposed some overreach by different elements of the of the federal government. But you go well first before I get to that. I wanted to ask you about uh, Northwest Flight three, two, seven. I don't want to forget to ask about that. Was that, so are you on this flight?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a, a lot of that is where some of the reporting that I do now began. Right. Um, that was my God, 2004. Wow. Um, and absolutely. And I was on that flight and that really changed my trajectory as a thinker more than anything else. Right. Because, um, I got off the flight, you know, it was
0: Can you explain it, what happened for, for people?
1: I mean, the short version is imagine being on a flight and thinking this is this a is is there is this a terrorist attack? Like what the hell is going on, right? Yeah. And then watching US federal air marshals come out of cover to the point where you see the sig Sauer, right? Mm. Because it's meant to be seen and you're like I'm on a plane, right? And and this is you know, just a few years after 9-11. And also it was the night that the government was giving back the control. How's this for a, a shot of history, right? And knowing what you, and wherever you've been, it was, we, give, we were giving back control to the Iraqis because the war was over. Mm. Okay. Yeah. 2004. And then think about how yeah. that didn't happen, but.
0: that was there, Asia, yeah.
1: you know, right. But, um, Fourteen Syrians on that plane. It was it was really tense for some of us, and you know, others were not even phased by it and got off the plane. Got debriefed by FBI guys. My husband and I um, absolutely expected to wake up in the morning and have it be a front page LA Times article where I live, you know, and it wasn't. And I began. And I was a financial reporter at the time, so I put my reporter's hat on and I began investigating and calling and asking and it just turned into a really big news story and eventually the white house investigated the flight and eventually it came out that these same fellows had uh because they were in the wind but you know but it came out that they had done this on another flight mm. and this is they were all syrians before syria was syria you know mm-hmm. i mean before syria became a national security issue and So, was it a red teaming operation? Was it a dry run for a terrorist attack? What was it? But it went all the way up to the White House Security Council. So, you know, that taught me two important things. Because people were furious. I was called a racist housewife before such a concept really even existed, you know. Um, And and I say that meaning before there was like the immediate jump to a kind of cultural assessment of a situation, which is really a national security issue and a question. Um, but it taught me that I didn't really care who agreed with me and who did not You know, I was on the flight with my husband and my firstborn son and I was pregnant. I didn't know it. Right. Um, with our second son. And so I was like mama bear, yeah. I suppose, you know. But it was a really, what a wild way to have your career begin. In, in, in and, you know, sometimes I look back through the long lens of history of that and I'm like, wow, that was kind of fate and circumstance doing for me what I couldn't do for myself because it really, it just turned the screws on me caring about what other people think. And mm-hmm. I knew I needed to report the story, whatever it was, not knowing. The out, not knowing what really happened.
0: Wow. So you weren't always like that growing up. Um, that that was something that was developed about really not caring what other people thought, going after oh, the truth, regardless.
1: I think that happened for me after that flight. Wow. I really kind of secretly still hung on to, like, you know, I hope so and so <laughs> likes, you, you know. Right, you yeah. Know yeah. Like, sure. We all have that. Look, as I get older, it becomes more interesting to me to be able to be truthful about some of these things that basically at heart were all kind of like, or at least for me, I'm the little, I'm the girl with the pigtails in the front row of the class in first grade, raising my hand, wanting to get called on, mm. you know? And I just want to, you know, so, so I kind of want to be in the center of it. yeah, And I think that I mean, that was a, that was like such a, it's funny. We're just cowboy talking here, as I say, where your thoughts go all over, but you know, Billy Waugh who died recently, he, Mm. he he was my main source in surprise kill vanish, but he became my friend, you know, Mm. and we traveled all around. We traveled to places where he, where he operated. And uh, we realized that we had that in common, you know, here's two people who couldn't have had less in common, Mm. right? He was the CIA's longest serving covert action operator from the Eisenhower administration to, you know, when he went back to search for Gaddafi in the last days of Gaddafi's life when Billy was 84 and we couldn't have been more different. And yet we both had our hands up Mm -hmm. in the front row of the class, wanting to be called on, wanting to be the center of the action. How cool is that as a reporter to get that experience?
0: Yeah. I think there's freedom in that. And uh, as long as you're, you know, you're, you're you're thoughtful uh, and then, you're putting that time in, and it gives you this freedom when you don't care about what anyone else thinks. You know you've been as thoughtful as you can possibly be about whatever the issue, whatever the topic is presented it in uh, in the way that's true to you, true to the story. Um, and hey, take it where it, wherever it goes from there. Hey, that's okay. And there's free, there's freedom in that, uh, in not worrying what other people think of you yes. and for me i think of it when i write when i write my novels it's about the story yes. it all it always has to be about the story it's never about oh i hope this critic likes it or i hope this uh this reader likes it or hey you know what i heard last time about the last book someone thought it was too violent or whatever it is um yes. it has to, i can't think about any of those things um it has to always be about the story i have to honor the story and by doing that uh then i'm also honoring the reader because they're getting the, the best possible version of this story and every my whole heart and soul goes into every single word so um so there's, there's a Lot too there's a lot of freedom in that yeah. in that I think. Um but uh let's see. I don't even know where to start as far as all these books go because I it's, they're just absolutely fantastic. But uh Pentagon's brain right here, DARPA. I want to read something about DARPA here. And uh for those who aren't familiar with it, uh the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency or DARPA as it is known is the most powerful and most productive military science agency in the world. It is also one of the most secretive and until this book, the least investigated. Its mission is to create revolutions in military science and to maintain technological dominance over the rest of the world. Mm. What led you to to DARPA?
1: Mm. I was just finishing up Operation Paperclip, which is about Nazi scientists who came to America. After the war to build America's weapons programs and the really dark and ugly weapons programs like biological weapons and chemical weapons and these Nazi scientists, you know, going down that rabbit hole and I went to Germany and sat in the Bundes archives with a translator and read these documents, met children of Nazis. And the whole thing was so overwhelming. And I was working with my editor, John Parsley, at the time, the end of, you know, as we were getting that book ready for publication. And he said to me, wait a minute, whatever happened to Von Braun, who was the sort of most well-known Nazi scientist who, you know, was the so involved in NASA and essentially got us to the moon. And I said, oh, well, funny you should ask, you know, and I had just gotten this detail that he, Von Brown had um, sort of as the rocket program was taking a, a, a turn in the, in 1957, the government was creating this new organization called, then it was called ARPA. Now it's DARPA. And they wanted a chief scientist. And who did they look to? But Warner Von Braun. And they asked him, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, asked Von Braun, this former Nazi. I mean, he was like, you know, Hitler's favorite scientist. Not, that's not an exaggeration. Um, And they asked him to come to the Pentagon and lead DARPA. And his response was, I will do it if I can bring 12 of my colleagues with me, AKA 12 Nazis. And that was the line in the sand for the Pentagon. They said no thanks, and instead they found a director in Herb York, who I write about at length in the Pentagon's brain. But I and John Parsley said to me, "That's fascinating. Maybe you should write about DARPA."
0: And off you went to the races. And I have lots of questions about Operation Paperclip, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, so off you went to the races on DARPA. And what I didn't—I also didn't know that uh, that DARPA started developing drones in the 1960s during mm-hmm. Vietnam, yes. did, uh, yes. did they actually use them in so, Vietnam or were they just developing yeah. and testing? Or?
1: They, they were developing and testing kind of at that, at that edge of where, and you know about this world where the technical war theater, you know, ends and where the no-go, the behind enemy lines begins. And when I was learning about DARPA, because I do go into my subjects not knowing and, and and that is the process of learning. And I think one of the reasons why I am a popular writer, meaning people, all kinds of people read me. I know I'm read by the generals at the Pentagon, but I'm also read by the little old ladies in South Dakota, you know, or your mom, the librarian. There right? it is, yep. Because I, I, I really care about, wait a minute, what? You know, like being a layman, not knowing, and then having the smartest guy in the room, explain or the smartest woman in the room, explain, okay, Annie, this is how it works. And that was my experience with drones and DARPA and that, you know, it was called McNamara's fence, this idea of elect using sensor technology, which now people just immediately think has always been there in the war zone. And of course it hasn't. And I learned that it was absolutely conceived and developed in Vietnam. And I also learned as I write in the Pentagon's brain, what that meant at the Pentagon in the seventies and eighties and how it was being developed, you know, and, and I found fascinating that after the Vietnam war, you know, people were like, Oh my God, we're in a time of peace. And look at, this is so amazing. We even have a secretary of defense, who's a scientist, right? And little did anyone, including myself realize, actually, it's the scientists that are developing the weapon systems of the future and that you know John Foster is who you're referring to who it was his love of remote control airplanes that led to the conception of drones in the war theater
0: i mean there's there's so much in here that everyone needs to read in all of these books that people need need to read uh, it'll make some things that are happening in uh, a present day less surprising yeah. perhaps or make you question a few things. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, I think, yeah, there's, let's see, I'm trying to find that. Yeah. The electric fence that's right there. Chapter 12, the electric fence right there. Um, but, uh, you start this with uh bikini atoll, the evil mm-hmm. thing. And I hadn't heard it called the evil thing before I read your, your book. I thought I knew a little bit about, uh, you know, that, that uh stage of history uh in the the post-world war ii era but uh the evil thing um Mm -hmm. and uh could you talk a little bit about that about bikini atoll the evil thing and then where that where that led
1: yeah well i mean isn't it amazing that manhattan project scientists themselves considered the thermonuclear bomb not to be confused with the atomic bomb right The atomic bomb is like a a tiny firecracker in comparison. I mean, a thermonuclear weapon has an atomic bomb as a fuse, F-U-S-E, right? Like the atomic bomb explodes inside the thermonuclear bomb to make that power. I mean, the, the orders of magnitude in explosive power cannot be comprehended and you might as well go to youtube and look at the videos Mm -hmm. that are now there because and then even then you can't really comprehend because there's nothing on scale because you're just seeing this massive explosion but the the scientists called it an evil thing because it is right um and for my forthcoming book which i can't yet talk about i interviewed richard garwin who it who designed the evil thing for richard teller okay So, and I asked him, you know, after all these years, what do you think about that? Do you wish you hadn't done that? And he said, I wish it couldn't have been done. Yeah. Right. But there it was. And and I write about it from two eyewitnesses who I had the privilege of interviewing for my book, Area 51, because they were weapons designers for EG&G and they were They were there working on those bombs. And the first, you know, the first hand, the eyewitness account of something, that's the gift of the journalist. Right. And you get that, too, as a novelist. You when you can hear firsthand someone's story, you just say, I got to be able to pass that along.
0: You know, in this last book, I did a little research into uh, what the Soviet Union, some of their largest tests and some of them were just declassified recently, like our side learning about it and then Mm -hmm. declassified. There was one over Siberia. I forget the exact year, but I incorporated it into my last novel and it wasn't even the largest that they could have tested and they tested it in in Siberia. I forget the exact year, but I mean, at that I remember growing up seeing those the videos that you talk about, they're now on YouTube, but they'd be on, you know, incorporated into a TV show or into a movie or something like that in the 80s. And you just couldn't believe that we were, as a kid, as a seven, 10-year-old, you're watching this and wondering like, wow, all these tests, what is that, what is that doing to our, to our world? Uh, why do we have to test so many of them? <laughs> Can we have tested one and been like, whoa, uh, okay, got it. Um, but uh, that kind of rolls into uh, Raven Rock. And uh, the undisclosed location, which was disclosed, I think, in two thousand and four, which everyone already knew about anyway. But um, once again, going back to growing up in the eighties, you always had this movie that uh, would show where the president or the vice president would go, or yeah. the, a cabinet, whatever it was, uh, to protect them from from a, a nuclear attack. And uh, what, what did you uh, learn about Raven Rock, and what mm-hmm. what anything surprised you about it?
1: Mm-hmm the most. And what is it, I
0: guess? I guess that's the first question. Raven Rock is, of
1: course, the place where, you know, after a nuclear war or under the threat of nuclear war, the government will allegedly go on to continue at Raven Rock or a number of other, you know, undisclosed locations around the United States that FEMA has, that the Defense Department has. Um, But the the details the devil is in the details right the most i you tell you, you speak of raven's rock and i can't help but think of this detail which i unearthed from my research on paperclip which was that raven's rock the original designer was one of the nazi scientists who came here and he's one of the only nazis who was jettisoned back to Germany by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm talking early, early, still in the 1940s. Why? Because he was being, his name is George Riquet, and he was being tried for war crimes because he had, and so he, who, like, this is this amazing, America needs the best, right? So at, yes, at the end of the war, the best scientists were the Nazis. So we hire Riquet to to begin designing Raven's Rock, this underground bunker for Eisenhower in, or actually originally for Truman and then Eisenhower in the event of nuclear war. But you got to find the best guy who can do it, who can build underground. And George Riquet had built Hitler's under, or rather designed and engineered and his team built Hitler's underground bunker. What a concept of like, you know, national security, um, the rubric, uh, you know, the circular, the offense, defense of it. Mm. Um, And that just sticks with me so clearly because, you know, where does it all go if you're capturing the most sort of evil scientists to create a new situation for the next world war? And by the way, I have not yet figured out how and why the military industrial complex cannot be tampered. Mm-hmm. I just can't, you know, and I will tell you when I figure it out, but in the yeah. meantime, I continue to investigate this because it's a very dangerous dangerous road and we know this and you write about it in your books and I write about it in my books. And yet at the same, you know, how do you balance that you must have a really strong defense so that you are not attacked? How do you, t- how do you keep one's head in check that you're not always a hawk or naively a dove?
0: It's yeah, it's uh, I love how you go through that and have other people, you ask that question of others uh, in these books and quote them. And it's uh it is, it's something that's tough to wrap your, your head around. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially. Uh, Speaking of, there's uh, what I wanted to ask you about John von Neumann and his paper "The Computer and the Brain"? Because it seems quite timely to me right now with the debates around artificial intelligence and everything we've seen, really from the beginning of this year, really come out into the public space and start becoming debated. Now we have the writers' strike in uh, yeah. in Hollywood, of which AI has taken uh, uh, center stage in that uh, in those discussions. So, um, what's uh, how did you find that that paper, "The Computer and the Brain," and what what is that? Mm-hmm.
1: Von Neumann is, okay, so the book is my book on DARPA is called The Pentagon's Brain. And John von Neumann was in essence the first brain for the Pentagon, right? Mm-hmm. So like after the war, he, von Neumann became the model of who who DARPA eventually wanted thinking for them. Right. Von Neumann was so smart that he he at one point, like Rand Corporation wanted him to investigate, you know, some other military technology. And he said, I'm too I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I'm too busy. And they said, well, that's okay. We'll pay you the full salary. Just when you're shaving in the morning, when you finish shave, just think about what we are asking you. And when you finish shaving, write those notes down, send it to us. And we'll call it a day like that was literally what his contract was. That's how smart he was. Okay. He was a polymath. I write about him at length, but he did. I see him as the first real physicist philosopher thinker about AI in that paper that I found. And that is, he was working at the time. um, His story is so interesting and complex and he deserves his own, you know, hours and hours and hours, but to answer your question about AI, he was at the Princeton Institute for Advanced Study, and Einstein was also there. And he was developing a computer which would become known as ENIAC, right? It was the first essentially the first post war computer that could that was greater than, you know, a, a, a like what we think of as a Texas instruments computer. And he developed this in the basement and it was under contract from the AEC, the Atomic An- Energy Commission, because they wanted to try and learn how to forecast weather. Weather is so important to war, right? But he, in working on that, developed this idea that one day a computer could think. And there's a little story that he tells, which I retell as part of that paper. And I tell it in the Pentagon's brain where he, he programmed this whole computer to add, right. To calculate. And he was so smart that in the beginning he could beat the computer. Right. So he, he could, he, he would, he would do the math in his head and write it down and his assistant would do, be doing it on the computer and he would win. And he was teaching the computer, you know, to, to, he was essentially creating software is what he was doing. And after some months, the computer beat him. The computer mm. could calculate faster than he could, which led him to writing this very prescient philosophical treatise about how one day the computer would be able to actually think.
0: Yeah. gosh, And here we are today uh but going back to vietnam or before i believe it was uh so for napalm i think harvard had a uh, uh, had a hand in creating napalm but for agent orange was was uh who who helped create agent orange
1: mm-hmm. i mean that was DARPA. you know they were they were always looking for new weapon systems of the future that is what they were doing and it was a, it was a direct offshoot of the chemical weapons programs that i write about in paperclip that were you know, developed by Nazi scientists who had worked on those chemical programs, sarin gas, VX gas. And with Agent Orange, um, it was a darker program. I mean, the details are very interesting and I think they're, it's, it's worth reading about specifically, right? But the program, um, essentially it's environmental warfare, um, was so vast and so complex. And I, I, almost, I don't, it's such a touchy subject, I mean, for obvious reasons, when I went back to Vietnam with Billy Wall, when I went to Hanoi, I met with a number of communist officials um, to talk about covert action. And the first question that every official asked me was about agent orange and what America's position on was it. And I'm just going to direct people to the book because I just wouldn't even want to remotely get anything paraphrased incorrectly because if that isn't a cautionary tale mm-hmm. of a weapon system that should never be approached right and i say that because i think right now when we if if one considers biological warfare and the possibilities that have come to be since i have written books that have covered biological warfare you know a decade ago right We are in a new domain with synthetic biology, with CRISPR, with gain of function research. We saw a bit of it in COVID. And these are issues that absolutely must be discussed transparently on a national level because people, you know, people are worried about AI. Wait till they find out what synthetic
0: biology can do. And uh, give us a, give us the two sentence version of what's uh, synthetic biology and what is that is that what keeps you up more than anything else i was gonna ask that later what what concerns you after doing all this research and then all the books that you haven't uh yet written um what 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 things concern you the most for for our kids
1: well we're both parents right so read you read you have read the opening pages of the pentagon's brain and read about watching the castle bravo bomb explode Mm -hmm. right and read about eyewitnesses who told me they saw their fellow scientists as skeletons because you know one guy couldn't look at the bomb because he gave his his glasses to another mm. guy so he had to turn and look at the scientist and not the bomb and the flash the x-ray flash made everyone appear to him as a skeleton Jeez. and so once you have that image in your mind and you realize oh my god we can just all die right literally Mm-hmm. from a nuclear holocaust um i think it become that's that takes away the power of i'm i'm up at night ter- you know scaring myself because we did survive that which doesn't mean we can continue to survive <laughs> it but the 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 cold war i mean you've written about the the, the cold war you know sort of Feuding, the, the hatred among the sides, which is kind of getting very close right now and very troubling. We survive that so we can survive. But to answer your question, synthetic biology is the ability that scientists now have to re-engineer pathogens, period, full stop, right? And that means imagine any horrible disease and imagine being able to weaponize it to be, you know, and, and that can be done. And it, cannot, it, it can be done in the lab, and therefore it mustn't be done in the same way that you can't spray Agent Orange over a country, yeah. right? So that should be the cautionary tale, I believe, for defense officials and for scientists to begin having this debate about what, you know, lines that cannot be cro- crossed and making legislation accordingly. The problem is, as everyone will tell you in the national security sphere, is that The science is moving forward at the speed of lightning and the courts and the legislators and the Congress are moving at a snail's pace. By the way, I attribute that to political bullshit. Mm -hmm. So that's why the only thing I can do in that arena is simply not enter the political debate. People all the time try to get me to comment on the president, Mm -hmm. this president, that president. And I won't do it because it's more important to me to talk about Oh, what are we doing about synthetic biology?
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And it's interesting when I did the research for two books back for The Devil's Hand about uh, spider defense research. And the, I was curious about, hey, we were, aren't we signatories to certain things in the 70s? Don't I remember Nixon doing something? Have I read about that somewhere? And going back and then figuring out the creative ways that defense establishment goes around, goes about getting around these things that we're signatories to. And there's no, no, domestic or international agency that checks on any of this stuff anyway to make sure you're <laughs> adhering to these uh these Treaties, or um, it's it. So that part was fascinating to me. But I also wanted to ask you about the Jason's tactical nuclear weapons in Vietnam paper that was classified up until two thousand three. Um, and was it a FOIA request that got that declassified? I, I forget. But uh, it was it was surprising to me that it was actually declassified in two thousand three. Uh, particularly because it was still so close to nine eleven. And I'm not sure because I need to get some more do some more research on it. But uh, I think there were some. Uh, options on the table that aren't really yeah. discussed in the aftermath of, of 9-11. But uh, the Jason's Tactical Nuclear Weapons in Vietnam, where did you come across that? Was that surprising to you? Or after all your other research, were you like, but well, yeah, typical, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, this is a very loaded topic that I'm happy to talk about here with you, right? So it was the idea of uh, it was the idea that the pentagon was seriously considering of jumping a nuclear weapon into vietnam halo jumping a nuclear weapon into vietnam to use okay and who was at the center of this billy wall right so when i wrote about that program based on the declassified reports in the pentagon's brain I did not yet know that Billy was the guy. Okay. And so this is where, like, my work becomes so interesting and to me, right? Hopefully to others, but because it's like, oh my God, you know, pieces of the puzzle you talked about. So that idea is really something interesting to think about. Now, my understanding is all of national security. Exists so that a nuclear weapon never gets used because that is the ultimate no go. Okay, and so it was really interesting to work with Billy, who believed that we that was a good idea, right? And I say this because I think part of being a reporter that's interesting is being able to have and and this bleeds over into my personal life you know and my whole life it's just you want to be able to have really interesting conversations or just conversations with people who you fundamentally are perfectly fine that you disagree you disagree on a fundamental Mm -hmm. because then you're just opening up your brain a lot and why would i judge that okay but what happened with that tactical nuclear weapon idea was When Billy Wah and I went back to Hanoi uh, and we were sitting in the garden of General Japs, who had, you know, led the North Vietnamese army and who was the great commander and in many ways was more important to the war than Ho Chi Minh. And um, we were sitting with Japs' son and a colonel who had been assigned to kill Billy Wah and his Mac V Sog teams that were operating behind enemy lines on the ho chi Minh trail and so the concept the philosophical concept of why billy and i went there was old men old warriors talking with their former enemy as friends yeah and what came up in that conversation was what you're talking about was that jason paper was that jason idea to jump a tactical nuclear weapon into Vietnam. And Billy, in that conversation, and I write about this, I believe, in Surprise because I write a little bit about it, but it's a much bigger story. And then Billy was like, God damn it, we should have jumped that weapon in. And <laughs> and, and they, there was this moment where it was like, you know, the translator, oh, what, what is he saying? And they were so I just was witness to this. And the our hosts, Colonel, the Colonel and, and uh General Jab san were horrified. You know, they were and it, it it gave way to this really interesting conversation about of all this, which is like, how could you even consider jumping a nuclear weapon into Vietnam and using it against our people? And Billy's response was, yeah, well, all my, a lot of people died because you know, it would have ended the war was his response. So regardless of what you think about that, and I know what I think about that, which is that has to be a no-go, but Billy was really interesting. It was interesting to listen to him. And it's still something I think about and talk about because, the fact that we were even going to do that and i write about in the book why i believe it was just apt abs- and why the jason scientists ended up s- reporting so they were asked by the pentagon to examine whether or not this was a good idea and their conclusion was the shorthand was it's a really bad idea because if we do it others will do it right which is the conclusion Or we'll do it I again
0: or we'll that'll be our default right? That will
1: be, right but billy's you know idea was different
0: yeah oh, man I mean, everybody everybody needs to read these books. Uh, Gosh, uh, I want to ask you also about the 2008 CIA program to track World of Warcraft players. And it seems to me like they, (laughs) a bit of an overreach uh, to do that. Uh, Just to be somebody gaming and not know that the CIA is taking this data and using it. For a uh, you know national security type purpose, but without your knowledge as a U.S. citizen. Um, but what 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 uh, did that surprise you when you found that out? Or does nothing it, surprise it, you anymore? It, After all this, no, nothing should I mean, surprise it, you no, anymore.
1: <laughs> nothing surprises me, but it's kind of like, oh, that's interesting. And then I begin to think of the other reasons and the other uses for it, right? Mm. Which is the argument of why the CIA has to have its hand everywhere because it has to know what other possibilities are. Like for example, that is a great place for terrorists to communicate with one another without being tracked. So they figured that out. That was a detail we actually used in Jack Ryan, right? Based on that reporting, which is, and so you have to figure that the agency's job is to keep an eye on where it could be caught flat-footed. Mm. And again, that's what you and I have been discussing and what we both think about and write about, which is where does it begin and where does it end, right? And how do you balance Hawk and Dove? How do you balance offense and defense? Yeah, um,
0: yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And you, can, and you can think about it forever and never come up with a quote-unquote right answer um, mm-hmm. for a variety. Uh, reasons, but I also want to I want to read this um, because it's so poignant to what we're dealing with uh, today. or What we're starting to, to think about more as a as a society. And you say in an interview for his for this book, Noel Sharkey, is that, I think that's how you say it, relayed a list of potential robot errors he believes are far too serious to ignore, including human machine uh-huh. interaction failures, software coding errors, malfunctions, communication degradation, enemy cyber attacks, and more. I believe there is a line that should not be crossed, he says. Robots should not be given the authority to kill humans. Can the push to create hunter-killer robots be stopped? Uh, And Steve, I'm going to mess this last name up, Omohundro, Mm -hmm. close, believes that an autonomous weapons arms race is already taking place because military and economic pressures are driving the rapid development of autonomous systems. And then at the end, in a world ruled by science and technology, it is not necessarily the fittest, but rather the smartest that survive. DARPA program managers like to say that DARPA science is science fact, not science fiction. What happens when these two concepts fuse? That's kind of where we find ourselves right now.
1: And that book was published in 2016. So we are a world away from that right now. But a lot of what I wrote was suggesting this is where we're gonna be in 10 years and instead we're here in seven years, right? But the Defense Department has you know been has the defense department decided around 2010 to move toward autonomous systems entirely and i write about that in the book and interestingly you know people sometimes say to me how'd you find those wildly classified documents they are not classified they never were it's just wonky defense department doctrine that somebody like me slogs through um and reads about and says, what, wait, what does this mean? And then interviews experts, both in the civilian sector and also in the, in the military and intelligence community world to say, what does this mean? And then I try to explain what it means. And what that means there, which was shocking to me, is that that is where things are going. And on the human element of this, which I found most interesting, was when the Defense Department put out this directive, okay, guys, we're... i'm paraphrasing we're moving toward ai systems Mm -hmm. right a lot of pushback came from very high ranking generals and admirals at the pentagon they were like no and they kind of were siding with what Sharkey was saying about this is a bad idea we'd need to always have a human in the loop and my reporting led me to other darpa programs working with the concept of trust and essentially, an inside baseball program to get people to trust AI systems, mm-hmm. right? So, in other words, getting those generals and, pen and and admirals to agree with this executive decision to move toward AI by working with their issues of trust, as opposed to saying, "Oh, let's take your opinion to the mats and and really, really think this through." And of course, now we see these drone systems of systems whereby there are, it's a sky full of drones. And this is where we are. And there's maybe a little bit of time still to say, where are we going? But again, this is where kind of, legislation or congress or someone you know the adult in the room (laughs) needs to step in and 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 have a bigger conversation and in the meantime the science is moving forward just so it like moore's law has a new moore's law Mm, that's how fast things move
0: and yeah, it's just getting getting faster uh, with each passing day, it seems. And this is pretty cool at, at the end. Um, and uh, the chapter is titled "The Pentagon's Brain." But you you interviewed someone named Charles H. Towns, uh, and I'll I'll read this because he has some some cool advice in here. Actually, um, the Nobel Prize winning inventor of the laser. Uh, When we spoke, Professor Towns was just about to turn 90 years old. Lucid and articulate, he was still keeping office hours at the University of California, Berkeley, still writing papers and still granting reporters requests. Two things we discussed remain indelible. Charles Towns told me that once long ago, he was sharing his idea for the laser with John von Neumann and that uh, he was told that his idea wouldn't work. What did you think about that, you asked him? If you're, going to, if you're going to do anything new, he said, you have to disregard criticism, which we talked about earlier. Most people are against new ideas. They think, if I didn't think of it, it won't work. Inevitably, people doubt you. You preserve anyway. That's what you do. And that was exactly what Charles Townes did. The laser is considered one of the most significant scientific inventions of the modern world. That's pretty cool. You got to sit down with him and hear that. And it goes back to what we were talking about just in general uh, about about criticism and moving forward. Um, But how 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 is it to go in, uh, did you go to his office and during office hours and sit down for an interview?
1: I mean, Towns is a genius. We did it on the phone, but he was still keeping office hours at Berkeley. And I believe he was actually 98, right? Okay. I mean, I think I was his last, uh, the last interview he did before he died. And he was just as lucid as a bell, but it was incredible. And we talked about a number of things. And, you know, another thing he spoke of, which I just have to say because it always has stayed with me, was that he believed, which has to do with inspiration, okay? Because he believed, or rather the idea of the laser came to him while he was sitting on a park bench. And later in life, towns spoke about being religious so Mm. i don't care if someone's religious or not religious i'm agnostic as to their religion but what was interesting to me was that he kept that secretive most of his life because the scientific community would have you know belittled that Mm. and yet it's a truth and so later in life he felt comfortable telling the truth about himself and i think that is a very interesting and wise path to follow. That as you get older, it's wise to think about telling the truth about yourself more and more, meaning where your inspiration comes from, where your ideas come from, what is most meaningful to you. I love that he talked about von Neumann poo-pooing him and saying it couldn't work. And what he, what I didn't write in there was he actually said, Einstein supported him, right? Uh, was like, yeah, yeah, you should try that. You know? <laughs> of course he did, yeah, right? Right. Um, right. But another thing that stays with me about Charles Towns was that he also told me that, the original idea for the laser, not the inspiration, not the how to do it, Mm -hmm. but the one day I might do it, came to him when he was a little boy Lying in bed reading science fiction, reading wow. the Garen Death Ray. Yeah. And so there you have this interplay of like science fiction and science fact and, and things that inspire us and how we dream and how we think and what's important to you. And what you have raised is the most important question, which is how does techno, how does advanced technology live side by side with democracy? you know, with a kind of peacefulness that, can lead, and I personally think it begins at home. I, that is why I just don't engage in all of this vitriol. I just, mm-hmm. I refuse. I, 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 have actually never gotten in a fight on Twitter, and I don't intend to, yeah. because I just would rather go the Charles Towns route. You know, keep like just you mm-hmm. keep writing your books. You know, mm-hmm. never mind. The critics right. are there, but there are so many important things to think about, and care about, and wonder about. We're really lucky that we live in America and and things are safe. I mean, you've been in the war theater. I haven't, you know.
0: It, uh, I think we can definitively say that Twitter comments, Instagram comments, Facebook comments, YouTube comments, uh, and going back and forth isn't the best place to have a uh, to engage in the exchange of ideas or to change anybody's mind. I don't know mm-hmm. if anyone's mind's ever been changed by, based on a Twitter comment or a response. It just degenerates and wastes everyone's time that could be used more productively elsewhere. So I don't do it either. I don't go, that's why you see something and as you want to, you see some comment and you're like, oh, but... Just gotta let it go. Get back to work. Okay. Uh, but I do want to read this last part here because it's uh, once again this. This was written years, a few years ago, but it's it's so so important. Um, and uh, you finish up with this. This book begins with scientists testing a weapon that at least some of them believed was an evil thing. In creating the hydrogen bomb, scientists engineered a weapon against which there's no defense. With regard to the thousands of hydrogen bombs in existence today. The mighty U.S. military relies on wishful opinionism. Hope that the civilian destroyer is never unleashed. And in the military, we like to say that uh, hope is not a course of action. At least it's not a good course of action. This book ends with scientists inside the Pentagon working to create autonomous weapon systems with the scientists outside the Pentagon working to spread the idea that these weapon systems are inherently evil things that artificially intelligent hunter killer robots can and will outsmart their human creators and against which there will be no defense. Mm -hmm. There is a perilous distinction to call attention to. When the hydrogen bomb was being engineered, the military industrial complex, led by defense contractors, academics, and industrialists, was just beginning to exert considerable control over the Pentagon. Another difference between the creation of the hydrogen bomb in the early 1950s and the accelerating development of hunter-killer robots today is that the decision to engineer the hydrogen bomb was made in secret. And the decision to accelerate hunter-killer robots, while not widely known, is not secret. In that Mm -hmm. sense, destiny is being decided right now. Mm -hmm. that's a great ending by the way thank you yeah and we're seeing it and now we're seeing it Mm
1: -hmm. a few
0: years later um, and
1: by the way the real not to really end on the most frightening note ever but
0: is
1: that the the real fear of the robots of ai if you will is that they will be able to get control of weapon systems and make decisions that are a thousand times faster and a thousand times more information based than the rest of us. For example, there, there was a, how do I say this? For example, you can take an AI, you can take a machine learning system, right? Because it's not quite artificial intelligence yet, at least the way I perceive it. It's really machine, you know, very advanced machine learning. But you can feed an algorithm into a system that creates, you know, drugs that help people. Mm -hmm. And you can reprogram the AI and say, go ahead and tell me like the worst possible thing, a pathogen that you could create that could just harm and kill everyone. And... That has been done. And I interviewed the scientist who did it thinking that he, he he gave sarin gas and VX gas as an example to the machine learning system. And he expected to come back in the morning and have had the computer system deliver the recipe for a really nasty, evil biological weapon. Mm -hmm. And instead the computer system delivered 40,000 recipes for 40,000 pathogens yeah so that is an indication of how ai is potentially out of control dangerous beyond your wildest imagination. Because I I personally could not have imagined that until the the scientist who did that explained it to me. And by the way, he it was suggested to him to do that by a, a international coalition, a very famous one whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, had suggested it to him as an exercise, thinking that the, the system would come up with one recipe. Yeah. So this is a very big deal.
0: Yeah. (laughs) On that note, uh, (laughs) well, and we did talk about this, but you haven't, I don't know if we could ever come up with it. There's never going to be that that answer. But um, uh, you talk about DARPA safeguarding our democracy, or does it stimulate America's seemingly endless call to war? Um, And I don't think we're ever going to find out. That answer. It's just one of those. It seems like it's just something that is. As we can continue to to move forward and continue to develop, continue to advance, continue to push boundaries. There'll um, be the double edge on on most most everything. But uh, uh, do you think about that uh, quite quite a bit still? Because because it it, it it goes mm-hmm. over into it, it on all the other books. There's a little thread of uh, of that question.
1: I mean, I think about that a lot, and I'm very interested in having that conversation. And I'm interested in having that conversation with people who I don't necessarily agree with, because right. I learned the most from that, from really trying to, because it's, it's not as simple as like being for war or against war, right. you know, it just isn't. And yet we know that people's positions have of an incredible impact on the defense department in, in, in the Pentagon's brain, I write about how in essence, the, the peace movement of the 19 late of the sixties and that stopped the Vietnam war. I mean, it's a long argument that I make at one point in it based on a lot of sort of plot moving, but it really is true. And so people do have an effect, but I also think about a lot, like, make sure that you make, at least for me, like have these different conversations with a lot of different people, whether we, a weapon should be jumped, nuclear weapons should be jumped into a war type thing, right? To, to, so that when you're walking around, at least this is, you're like, you know, you're thinking about these things and then other things come and it opens up, it opens up other pathways of thinking and it allows for, far more interesting discussions with my children, for example, you know, about, and again, these are like open-ended discussions. So it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom, because we're really talking about, you know, basis for reality. I mean, we haven't even spoken about Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And this is another discussion that I think should and must be have. And it just, like, I, I just find it, shocking that the american public has just absolutely like pulled a washcloth over its head you know when the word i i will i will tweet about afghanistan or retweet a really interesting article that someone has written a colleague has written and like and it, it seems because of course you can look at the analytics on twitter it seems as if no one cares yeah and this is very, very interesting to me. And again, not judge, you know, yeah. not judging per se, just interesting. Why is this, right? What's really going on here about people's temperature for what they want to know about? Yeah. Uh, another Okay, so here's another thing. I, I mean, when I was writing about drones through the war on terror, you know, the vilification of drones was the primary position, mm. okay? And in the news, certainly. And yet now I'm fascinated, wrong, you know that's a bad word, but interested in the fact that in Ukraine, the drones are the drones are the good guys. Right. But either way, the drones are the drones. What happened to the objective idea that drones kill people? Certainly in the So and this, again, comes back to AI, right, which is really machine learning, which is really the fact that the drones, which began in Vietnam, you know, John Foster's idea, Um, have developed to the point where soon they will be autonomous drone swarms, whether or not that means an operator back at the Pentagon will be giving the launch order or someone on the ground, but they will be. This is a future reality. And people might benefit from thinking about that as opposed to just simply having an opinion like, yay, drones kill bad Russians, Right. right? Whereas before... What happened to, you know, there was like the code pink ladies, you know, like storming Congress or, you know, drones are killing people Well, they're still killing people. Why are they good versus bad? So I think about these things because it's a, it's a system check on oneself. It's like, look in the mirror, you know, what, what are my, am I really being thoughtful about these things or am I just having an opinion?
0: And today, especially, how am I being manipulated? Um, I think that's a good question to ask. When we, yeah. when you look at the analytics on Twitter and it doesn't seem that people are as interested in our 20-year uh, adventure or misadventure into Afghanistan, uh, especially considering how it ended up with 20 years to prepare for that eventuality, um, well, how are we going to take those lessons and apply them going forward as wisdom for our children and for generations uh, going forward? So that's that's the part that really concerns me and that allows you also when you're not interested in those lessons. Um, that allows you to be more easily manipulated or not ask that question. Whether it's a news entity or a political party or whatever it is, a company corporation that wants you to take a certain action or influence your behavior or your thoughts. Um, yeah, I think you gotta ask the gotta ask the question and not be distracted by that 15 second. TikTok video. Um, so that's, yeah, uh, but, uh, we could talk for like 10 hours. Um, uh, but we have mentioned this, uh, operation paperclip quite a few mm-hmm. times. And I, I have not even through my first page of questions of which there are for. Uh, so so I know we're not going to get to all of them, but that just means hopefully that we can do it again when your next book comes out mm-hmm. and uh, we can revisit some of these past ones and talk about your your new one that remains secret. But we have mentioned Operation Paperclip, and I think this is so important because for a couple of reasons. One, because ends justifies the means. Uh, mm-hmm. That is something that uh, we can think about strategically as a country, geopolitically, and then on a personal level as well. So, and are those different? Well, anyway, you explore some of that in this, but for those who are not familiar, I just want to read from the beginning of this book. And we, I would love to read all of these, but we'll see how, how far we, we get here. Um, We talked a little bit about it, but this is a book about Nazi scientists and American government secrets. It is how dark truths can be hidden from the public by us officials in the name of national security. And it is about the unpredictable, often fortuitous circumstances through which truth gets revealed. Operation Paperclip was a post-war U.S. intelligence program that brought German scientists to America under secret military contracts. Under Operation Paperclip, which began in May of 1945, the scientists who helped the Third Reich wage war continued their weapons-related work for the U.S. government, developing rockets, chemical and biological weapons, aviation and space medicine for enhancing military pilot and astronaut performance, and many other uh, uh, armaments at a feverish and paranoid pace that came to Mm -hmm. define the Cold War. So for people that don't know about this, also, it uh, it helps you maybe question some things. If the government was willing to do this and to forgive, essentially, um, actions of some of these Nazi scientists, uh, what else are they willing to do in the name of national security? Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal Credit Union is here to help military members and their families tackle home ownership during this high-rate market. With their new no-refi rate drop option, if you buy your next home now and mortgage rates drop later, you could lower your rate by paying a low fee instead of refinancing and paying thousands in closing costs. They offer mortgage options with zero down payment, so you don't need to wait years to save. Also, planning any travel this summer? Navy Federal flagship credit card treats members to our highest rewards and premium benefits. Flagship makes it easy to rack up rewards with higher points on travel, including everything from tolls to terminals, earn a bonus 40,000 points. When you spend 4,000 in the first 90 days, plus enjoy a free year of Amazon prime at Navy federal. Our members are the mission. Learn more at Navy federal.org. Federally insured by NCUA, membership required, equal housing lender. Terms and conditions apply, loans subject to approval and eligibility requirements. Open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. As of 5-1-2023, the rates for flagship are 14.74% to 18% based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs, a $49 annual fee for Visa signature flagship rewards. Navyfederal.org. How did you start down this path? Did, what where, where did you first hear about Operation Paperclip?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, like all my books, it's like I hear about it in the previous books, the book, right? I was writing Area 51 and I was stunned two things. One, some of the scientists that worked at Area 51 were Jewish and they were working alongside former Germans, you know, and I wondered like how did that how did that feel? And two, I came across a guy called Kneemeyer, Colonel Kneemeyer. And he was so important to the Third Reich, to Göring, who ran the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, that Goering had a nickname for Knemeyer. He called him My Boy. Mm-hmm. And Knemeyer was a pilot and an engineer. And after the war, Knemeyer came here as part of Operation Paperclip. And he was so important to the Defense Department that he won, he was awarded when he retired in the 70s, the Distinguished... Civilian Service Award, which is the highest award that the Defense Department can give to a civilian scientist. And I thought, how on earth do you go from being like the Third Reich's guy to being the Pentagon's guy? And that led to Paperclip. And an interesting journalist note, because we began by talking about sourcing and how you get a story. I thought to myself, how am I gonna write about Paperclip? I mean, it's, you know, this was a tough nut to crack. And just to have the declassified documents was one thing. How was I essentially going to get the voice of the scientists, right? And so I tracked down one of Knemeyer's grandsons living in the United States and asked him if he would speak to me. Now, this, the children, usually the wives, the children, the grandchildren, they don't know anything. But in my experience, they often have... In the attic, grandpa's papers,
0: Mm.
1: which is exactly what happened. So the grandson said to me, you know, I I I have the papers in the attic. And he sent me the box of papers with the understanding that I would send it back to him, which I did. But inside of it were, among other things, a recommendation by Albert Speer, right? A letter of recommendation to the Reich for right? So these were like Knemayer was, you know, in like Flynn with the, you know, the Jeez. the the top-tier Nazis. And but even more interesting was some of Knemayer's personal writings Jeez. that he did before, during and after the war. And I use a lot of them in the in I reference them in the book and you can find them in notes. Yeah. So that, you know, you can see where all that sourcing comes from. And I think what that what I attempt to do is, is humanize all of these stories where the Nazi scientists remain in a class of their own for me is the fact that so we brought one thousand six hundred. Nazi scientists to America, that is known, it's probably a larger number, but that's what's known right now. And I focus on, I think 23 or 25 of them in my book, really like kind of top Nazis. And not a single one of them anywhere ever on the public record or the private records that I looked through ever acknowledged remorse, not once, nowhere. And I still think about that. Yeah.
0: That's quite remarkable. And right here, and so it went. Just one year and a few months after the end of World War II, some Nazis were hanged. Others now had lucrative new jobs. Mm-hmm.
1: That was paperclip. It was about who to hire versus who to hang. Yeah. You know, we prosecuted some of them at Nuremberg and others man. we hired. And one what? of the most shocking you know, concepts I came to understand in reporting that book and really heavily annotate because it needs to stay on the record is that the Air Force in particular pulled Nazi scientists out of the jail at Nuremberg so that they could come to the United States. Literally. Just like, oop, come with me.
0: Was that, um, who who was the John... So yeah, there was fifteen uh, people that were on. I think there was death sentences, and ten were pardoned. Um, that you uh, that you talk about in here. The,
1: the guy I'm referring to specifically was a guy called Theodore Benziger, and he hmm. was just such a odious and horrible person based on my read of his of the of his interviews his transcript interviews when he was arrested in Nazi Germany and whatnot but here's the rub he's the guy that the Air Force pulled out of the prison at Nuremberg because he was going to stand trial at the doctor's trial and when he died before when he died in I believe it was the late 90s the New York Times published an obituary and I cite it in the book it says like you know He died and, you know, he's famous, a German scientist, sort of Mm. subtext, he's a good German, and he invented the ear thermometer. And it says nothing else. And I became kind of hell-bent for leather to demonstrate he did a lot more than invent the ear thermometer, guys.
0: Yep. You finish up the, the book with that. Actually, the person I was thinking about was John McCloy. So it was a accelerated operation paperclip, 10 death sentences that he commuted 10 out of, out of 15. I think it was going to be more, but someone raised a little bit of a, a fuss about it. Um, and I did want to ask you about camp King also, because it kind of is a, uh, a precursor to uh, more modern day black sites that, uh, wow. that people are aware of. And, uh, you write how the CIA used Camp King remains one of the agency's most closely guarded secrets. It was here that the CIA first began developing extreme interrogation techniques and behavior modification programs under the code names Operation Bluebird and Operation Artichoke. The unorthodox methods the CIA and its partner agencies explored included hypnosis, electric shock, chemicals, and illegal street drugs. Camp King. Where did you find out about Camp King?
1: I mean, you know, one as one gets older, there are certain things one has reported on. In my case, Camp King, where you're like, you know, I'm really glad I was able to put that original source material into narrative form mm-hmm. into a book for others to build upon, because that was original. What we call in the business original reporting, right? And so it existed. On the public record, but very sporadically, and I put it all together, and then was able to really write the narrative. And those programs that you refer to, Operation Artichoke and Bluebird, those are the precursor programs to MK Ultra. So they became MK Ultra. And in looking at Camp King, and I hope another young journalist out there takes the baton and writes, you know, a, a three-book series on Camp King because that. Is a extraordinary uh, hidden program. It didn't just involve the CIA. It was the CIA was partners with the military organizations, mm-hmm. and they all worked there. And then there was a, and another. You know, it's a rabbit hole of information. Yeah. But to answer your question, um, the real sort of icing on the cake of horrible ideas. Was that two major Nazi doctors, Doctor Kurt Blum, who did stand trial at Nuremberg and was acquitted uh, because he was just such a sharp mind? He was the the physician, the attending physician at Camp King, while he was being prepped for the United States, and then Doctor Walter Schreiber, perhaps outbeating Doctor Blum in odiousness. Um, Triber, having been the Surgeon General of the Third Reich, is the attending physician for the agency for the military organizations at Camp King. Both of these guys were the top physician there. I mean, you know, I only got a crumb of the of the truth about that, and it's more than in, that existed on the public record. But what really went on there, uh, we will have no idea. I went there uh, and toured that facility with a with a german historian who was really responsible for unearthing a lot of it and there had been some documents written in german like in the past 10 years about camp king but they'd never been translated into english and so they existed on the record but not our record you know not the uh, american record and so i went and and worked with the the author to to learn about that and the it's just shocking, but it is the original black site. Yeah, It's like people, you know, and in surprise kill vanish, I write about, you know, I, I, I worked with John Rizzo, the CIA sort of lead attorney going back to the Carter administration who wrote a lot of the memorandums of notification that allowed for interrogation allowed for, you know, you can call it enhanced interrogation. You can call it torture. It depends who you're talking to, but, um, allowed for lethal direct action allowed for these ground branch teams to kill people rizzo worked with me directly you know he has since died but he was extremely generous with his time and his his helping me to understand how and why this worked rizzo was vilified by the press and thrown under the bus for having you know created the torture program it's like Hello, go back to Camp King if you want to really see yeah. how the creation or the origin story of the CIA's role in enhanced interrogation. Don't blame Rizzo.
0: Yeah, no, it's that, that that really stood out to me in here is something to be further explored as well um, and something that ties directly to, to my time and time service. So that's why it really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. General, how do you say it? G E H L E N, Gellin, then Gellin organization. Yeah, yeah. How is that guy attached? That seemed like a, like a, like that's yeah. a, it that seemed like fiction. It seemed like something that I would have written or somebody in the 60s, 70s would have, would have written. Um, and people that's, would have thought it was total fiction.
1: I mean, that is the rabbit hole I almost started talking about, but then I didn't <laughs> because, you know, it, listen, I mean, another odious person that we hired. Um, Galen had been in charge of Eastern-facing intelligence for the Third Reich, right? So looking east, so so the Soviet Union. And Galen was a horrible war criminal. But instead of hanging him, we hired him, not for paperclip. He couldn't you know, he, he it was known that he was a bad German, right? A bad Nazi. And so we set him up nearby Camp King to run our intelligence operation looking east. And so the people who were tortured at Camp King, um, who were they? Oh, they were people that Galen found. Okay, so you're going to trust him As a sort, oh, this is the bad guy, right? This is the Galen would say, and of course, I'm paraphrasing here. But this is the this is this guy is spying for the Soviet Union. You should torture him to get the truth out of him. But as it was revealed, and as you can easily predict, or you can write in a novel, Mm -hmm. Galen was settling scores. Yeah. You know, so half the people maybe really were Soviet spies who were spying against the United States and the other half were just people he wanted to get rid of. And where do we know this story from? You know, in modern day times. So again, read history folks, like you can if nothing else to give you a less self-righteous attitude about yeah. present day conundrums. Yeah. You know. People are not inventing torture. People are not inventing revenge. People are not inventing, you know, political payback. It's always been there. But if going to our discussion about technology, you want to be advancing, you don't want to be a Luddite. You want to advance forward in terms of technology, but you also want to advance forward in terms of thinking.
0: Yep, and maybe apply some common sense every now, every now and again, which seems to be in short supply at, at certain levels. Um, I won't talk about what happened in the 1951 case of Dr. Schreiber. Is that how you say it? Schreiber? Schreiber. Could people mm-hmm. get this book and, and read and find out about that in there. Um, and, uh, but I do want to read the end here because it goes full circle to what, uh, what we talked about earlier. The question remains, despite man's contribution to a nation or a people, how do we interpret a fundamental wrong? Is the American government at fault equally for fostering myths about its paperclip scientists for encouraging them to whitewash their past so that their scientific acumen could be exploited for the U S weapons related work. When for a nation should the end justify the means? Yeah.
1: Myth banking, you know, myth-making is a really interesting concept. And again, look in the mirror, right? Because we all do it a little bit with our own selves so that is human nature. When governments, so it would make sense and it would follow that governments create myths as well about, um, you know, to sort of aggrandize themselves. And again, it's like lose the self righteousness and just put on the investigator's cap or the or the thinking person's cap. Um, and and be, and remain curious.
0: Yeah, no, that's it. Uh, and yeah, I, I want everybody to get Operation Paperclip for sure, Pentagon's brain for sure. And I'm going to be respectful of your time, but I want to ask you a couple more questions uh, before I wrap it wrap things up. Uh, because when you when you're talking about Area 51, you're talking about uh, you're doing that that research, and then recently we have more information coming to light about like if, imagine if the things that we've been that have come to light over the last, let's say, year and a half, I might be a little off there, about UFOs had come to light in 1985. Like It would be front-page news on every newspaper, Time Magazine, Newsweek, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Everyone would have this, a year of front-page news. And now we're like, oh, of course, UFOs, yep. Because everything's just become so crazy and we get distracted so easily, um, I think. But uh, what was the, the latest one, this uh, UFO retrieval program, that uh, someone David Grush is that how I say his name, recently came forward, a whistleblower talking about this UFO retrieval program. What were your thoughts on that when you when you saw that, or what were your thoughts over this last year, year and a half when you see more of these things kind of hit the front page for a half second?
1: Mm-hmm. Having studied the idea of UFOs, unidentified flying objects, you know, I do have a bit of a different take, then, and I don't want to say it's the skeptic's take or the cynic's take, because I find both of those kind of adjectives, like that's thin, you know, just to be, a, I'm a skeptic, I'm a cynic, right? But I have a longer form thought process on that, because I wrote about the idea of unidentified flying objects at great length in Area 51, because the CIA base was set up to develop you know, high-flying reconnaissance spy planes, the U-2 and then the A-12 Oxcart. And I interviewed not only the spy pilots who flew these, but the the officers who ran the programs and the engineers who built the planes and the physicists who designed stealth. And all of this secret keeping uh, is important to national security, and when you're talking about, you know, aerial reconnaissance, nothing could be better for any of the agencies involved than for people to think, I saw a UFO when in fact they saw the U-2 right. flying you know, at 70,000 feet with its giant wingspan, you know, hitting the sun and looking like a UFO. Does that mean all sightings are U-2s or CIA spy planes? No, but one has to have, you know, have that in balance. And so I ask when I see these things, oh, is this something to think about seriously or is it more of the same black propaganda being put forth by the agency the powers that be other intelligence organizations Mm -hmm. maybe nro i write in area 51 about the difference between you know disinformation and misinformation and this has been going on at least in my reporting i've reported on instances of it since the 1950s
0: but then going back to the even the 80s even i remember doing making a model back in let's say mid 80s uh before stealth technology was uh, acknowledged uh, or the stealth plane was first unveiled to the public. And that model airplane, little tiny plastic thing is glued together was pretty dang close to to what was eventually revealed for those that uh, grew up then and either made one or saw it on the shelf of the toy store. Uh, Like it wasn't too far, wasn't too far off. So um, I always think about that as well when I hear about these, these sightings, but then you see these uh, pilots. That uh, that get on and they're military pilots and they say they saw these certain things and they can't be explained and I mean I mean who, well, who knows
1: it also does come down to a need to know right and I attended the the retirement ceremony for the F one seventeen the stealth. Plane and I was a guest of uh, Ed Lovick, who I write about in Area Fifty One, who kind of invented stealth technology for this for the CIA back when Eisenhower was president. And at this retirement of the F one seventeen, the lead Lockheed the lead Lockheed Martin officer said the most interesting thing. He said, and I'm I'm paraphrasing him, but he said something like, "We kept this program." Totally secret. There was never a leak for some extraordinary amount of time. I don't want to mess it up, but I want to say it's 20 years, right? And he said something like 10,000 people were read into this program. Wow. Wow. And that makes you think about how, I mean, I certainly believe that, you know, people say like, Conspiracy. The government can't keep a secret. Oh, yes, they can.
0: Wow. 10,000 people read in. That's amazing. That's a lot of people keeping a secret. Oh, and
1: and by the way, he made time. another joke. And this is a novel, the novelist in you. He said, even Tom Clancy, like Tom <laughs> Clancy was the one guy who was not officially read in, but the Lockheed guys liked him so much oh. and they appreciated giving him information for his novels that they kind of quasi read him in.
0: Ah, very interesting. And that leads, well, I'm, I'm going to get to ask you, I want to ask you about Jack Ryan because uh, I entered that world recently uh, with Terminal List and then writing some of this uh, finale for the spin-off and the and the second novel and and all that but before I get to that I just did want to ask you about surprise kill vanish um, and uh, your your friendship with Billy Waugh since he did just pass away we mentioned him uh, a couple times but he what a legend in Special Operations history I have his book right here that I I, I believe I read this in uh, in Iraq it was I think in Iraq I read this years and years ago uh, but it's my my original paperback and I uh, what an amazing guy! How did you get linked up with him? And then, what are your uh, what's one of your uh, fondest memories of Billy Wa?
1: Oh my God! Every you know everything about Billy Waugh was just he was awesome. He really beca- he really became a friend of mine, you know. Um, and that sort of is the privilege of meeting someone later in their life, right? Where they, um, there he was so accustomed to being at the center of it all and being really busy, and then he wasn't. So it was like You know, I remember when he said to me, Hey, you know, you want to go halo jumping in Cuba? And I was like, Hell yeah, you know. (laughs) Um, But, you know, how did I meet Billy? Well, here's the reporter's trick, right? A lot of these guys have really big egos. I mean, how can you not, right? You know, you know this. You have to be able to really, you know, if you're going to be an apex person, right? An alpha. You have a huge ego. And I had called Billy Waugh up to talk to him. And, you know, I got the like,
0: hell, I'm not going to talk to you. You're wasting your my,
1: you know, that thing. Right. And, um, and so I called, I, I played upon his ego. Right. I was in town. I knew where he lived and I, and I was interviewing one of the Apollo astronauts who lived not far away. And I called him up and said, like, "Oh, I'm local. Can can I come talk to you?" And I got the usual, like, "I don't remember," you know. And I said, you know, that's okay. I'm just here interviewing, and I name dropped the Apollo astronaut, you know. And he stopped, mm. and he was like, "Well, okay, maybe you can come talk to me," you know. <laughs> and it was just like, okay, right. And that's that's. I went and talked to him, and we we actually went to McDill and met in the Taco Bell. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> that, right? Okay. And, uh, and just, you know, and then it just began there. And again, so I'm in it for the long run. You know, I really, really like reporting books. And yeah. so I have patience. I will wait and wait and wait until somebody has a space of time to talk to me. Yeah. And that's how it began with Billy. And then eventually, um, you know, we had so much. We had such an interesting time i talked to him maybe one month before he died he would he was like sort of in and out of being lucid and um maybe it was two months um but but we would we had such a camaraderie right Mm -hmm. and 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 he also told me a lot of things that were not for reporting Mm -hmm. and that's fine too you know that's what we call deep background and he would tell me things not to compromise national security but rather to demonstrate to me that he wasn't perfect and that he wasn't a hero right he he would reveal to me and this is true of a lot of the sources i became closest with over reporting my books like billy would tell me things that where where he interpreted that he failed okay Mm. and that catharsis, I'm sure, was important for him. It certainly was important for me in terms of one always wants to develop their own personal character to be, you know, more aware of one's own flaws and one's own, you know, weaknesses. Right. And that's what Billy shared with me. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I'll tell you one, can I tell you one yes. interesting Right. So we were going to Hanoi and we were going to go back to find Oscar eight, which I write about in the book and Billy writes about in his book. And it's just like the most insane shit show of a battle gone to hell that could, that you could possibly imagine. I think we lost 14 aircraft, right? Like, and it was just, it was insane. It's the only time a person from V SOG has been rescued by Billy and and one other guy, right? Lester Pace, and it just had so many. Oh my God, this had never happened before. Parts of it, and read the read the 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 story in there. But we were going to go back and find the battle space and like try to like find you know. And it was behind enemy lines in Laos, and I had a uh, a guide set up, and we were going to. It was just the whole thing was. So Billy comes out to stay with me, and he he has a very large suitcase and a bunch of white button down shirts on hangers. Okay. (laughs) And he's like, let's go to Vietnam. And Mike, I'm like, Billy, like, like we're going into Like, you know, you needed to have a carry on and that was it type thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was so peculiar to me because here's this guy who operated in 64 countries. I'm like, what is going on? And so I said to my husband, like. He would not, Billy would not let me touch his suitcase or anything. And I said, Will you like deal like what you have to sort this out? We cannot show up in Hanoi like that, right? So Kevin, my husband, you know, repacked Billy into a one, a single carry-on. And then he revealed to me when we were there that he had never traveled as a civilian. He had only ever gone anywhere always for decades for the cia and they just literally said you know get on this flight and and who whatever he needed he would get there but he never like packed and traveled wow and so this was and it was such insight into him and 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 the pride, you know, that kind of cool Mm. kind of pride that he didn't want me to help him, right? But he had Kevin help him, and then he also wouldn't let me see what was in his bag. He was very protective, and I was like, oh, my God, what's he bringing, you know? (laughs) And after it was all said and done, when we got back home and we were waiting for our drive back, you know, he opened up his suitcase and he pulled out an American flag and he gave it to me. Oh, wow. And he had brought the American flag to Hanoi. Once upon a time, it was illegal to have an American flag. I mean, until recently, I believe. And it was kind of his, you know, fuck you to the, to the NVA, which no longer exists. But it was his, it was just so meaningful on so many different levels. And it suddenly put together the pieces of this curious episode with him packing and all of that Mm. in a manner that, that I still think about, which is never judge a per- You have no idea what someone is thinking, doing, you know, until later. And sometimes you're fortunate enough to be told what was going on. Wow. I still have that flag. Yesterday was flag day. You know, I had it out, Amazing. right?
0: Amazing. And, Everybody should read this. So for more on Billy Wall, definitely read Surprise, Kill, Vanish, and Billy's book right here, Hunting the Jackal. Um, I also wanted to ask you, did you change, uh, maybe not specific to this book, but maybe specific to, to the research for this book and your friendship with Billy, did you change any... Uh, preconceived notions that you had going into that based on conversations with him or your research for that book mm-hmm. in particular about whether it's uh covert action or uh findings or targeted assassinations or uh that mm-hmm. part of US foreign policy
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean I learn you know everything e- e- Every one of my books and all of most of my really close sources who I read, they just changed my thinking entirely, mm. you know. And and that is that is extraordinary. And and again, that's why you should hang out with people who you might otherwise not know, right? But I had an extraordinary thing happen, um, which was the last physical time I saw Billy Waugh, which was during COVID. And this changed my idea about a lot of things about secrecy and national security. But, and this loops back to that Jason program, of, you know, halo jumping a nuclear weapon in, right? So, I get this call during COVID from Los Alamos and, um, the historian there, I'd been working with him on a new book, but he says to me, I need to talk to Billy Waugh. And I say, okay, sure. We can set up a zoom. You know, he said, you, you know, he trusts you. Would you introduce me to him? Which is, which is very interesting that one arm of government can't mm-hmm. just necessarily talk to someone else, you know? So, and he said to me, no, we, we, this has to be done in person. And I was like, okay, Los Alamos, it obviously has something to do with the nuclear weapon. Right. And he explained to me that, part of sometimes reporters get classified information. He didn't have to explain this to me. I know this, but you don't know what is classified, but it sometimes appears in the book. Okay. And it's re- it's pretty much not mentioned. Um, and you, I didn't know this, but there was one section of my book where Billy is talking about halo jumping a nuclear weapon in a live action test. And interestingly, I'd gotten a lot of pushback from some other people, these critics were talking, you know, that didn't happen. That can't happen. I even had one guy of Mac V SOG call me up and insist that I rewrote part of the book because Billy was wrong. And I said, like, you know, I basically said that and said, you know, you talk to Billy if you don't like it. But in the book, I don't say this is fact. I'm quoting Billy. He's describing this nuclear weapon that he, Halo, jumped in a small atomic demolition weapon. It was called a SATAM, right? So there I am with the Los Alamos historian. In Florida with Billy. And they go into the back room, into Billy's office to talk about what it is they need to talk about, because I don't have a need to know about it. And I hear shouting, Okay, I hear Billy shouting like, God damn it, you (laughs) son of a bitch. I mean, anybody who knows Billy, right? And what had happened was the guy from Los Alamos needed information from Billy about this weapon that he describes in my book that no one else knows about that is alive. Hence all the people saying he got it wrong. Well, he didn't get it wrong. He got it exactly right. And the Los Alamos historian needed to know more about it. And Billy wouldn't tell him because the historian didn't have, even though he was Q cleared from Los Alamos, didn't have the call and response. Mm. And Billy explained to me later, I will only ever tell certain things to people if they tell me, you know, he, you, you know this from working in classified situations where there's a, you know, Alpha, Bravo, Sierra, 12. And if somebody says that to you, then you know, oh, I can tell them. And that guy didn't have that information and he wasn't going to tell them. That's Billy took that with him to the grave.
0: That's amazing. The uh the special access programs, you know, there's all sorts of things I don't don't know about from my time in the in the SEAL teams. And people oftentimes think that uh, just because I was a SEAL, you know, a lot of secret stuff. And uh, for me, most of mine was like what every big city SWAT team is going to do tonight. They're going to serve a warrant on someone. They're going to go to that person's, how they're develop a pattern of life. First off, try to figure out exactly where they are, when they're going to be there. Maybe there's a trigger, which is a, a human phone call from somebody in this uh, a source or whatever it might be, or it's technical intelligence or both in many cases, uh, and they'll go and they'll serve that warrant in the middle of the night, and essentially that's what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. So uh, for mine, there wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of secret stuff, but uh, special access programs for sure exist. And if someone says something happened and they were in the SEAL teams and they were read right into this other program, I'd have no idea because I wasn't read right into that uh, that thing that they were doing. Much like like Billy uh, having knowledge and being part of a program that somebody else wasn't. In special operations. So it's, uh, it's, it's more common as far as that stuff goes, being, uh, involved in a program and then being read out of that program and moving on. But nobody else in your organization was read into that because of reasons X, Y, or Z. But, uh, oh, interesting. Amazing. What a, what a, what a life he lived. Gosh. Incredible. Incredible. And, uh, all right. I've kept you way past our time. I know, but I want to ask you about the Jack Ryan series. How did they, did they approach you? How did you get into, uh, to screenwriting and that side of the house? Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, fun stuff, you know, that I, I'm really a big believer in sort of fate and circumstance, right? That if you just, if you live your life, with gusto, right? Kind of really working where you feel the most energy and like excitement and, and, and challenges, right? Then great stuff happens. And I, of course, always wanted to write television, but the way it actually happened was of course, lo and behold, there I was like doing a, a dinner talk, a talk for the library association of Los Angeles whom i will always be of service you know anything they ask me the answer is yes to raise money for the libraries and it was at someone's you know home a fancy you know xyz amount of dinner per thing with me talking and one of the uh people there was who would end up being my amazing boss on jack ryan his wife and she heard me speak and went home and whispered, you know, you got to hire this lady to write on Jack Ryan. And that's kind of literally how it happened. Oh, and so I think, you know, it's kind of this idea that like, you know, the sunlight of the spirit, right. You just, you just shine the wind. You just, you just washing in the windows, you know, and the sun, you don't know where the sunlight yeah. is going to come through, but the joy that I get writing television is huge, you know, um, I really, really, really enjoy it. It's an, inc- especially as I get older and you have the lane of reporting and then this lane of mythologizing essentially, mm. right. You know, creating fiction and creating stories. And I, I just love everything about it. And, and whenever I'm asked to write TV, usually the answer is yes.
0: Yeah. No, I, I how different it is from writing the book. So for the books, only me that's, it's solo. And then how collaborative the screenwriting process is, or at least with my small bit of experience that I have now, how, how collaborative that that is, even if it's one person's name for that episode, just how many people, uh, not just in the writer's room, but executive producers and not just executive producers all the way up to the head of Amazon studio with notes and then back down and then figuring out how to, uh, to acknowledge those notes or argue, or sometimes they're a good idea that you incorporate. And anyway, it's so collaborative and so much more of a team effort for those, uh, for, for screenwriting, at least that was my, my experience versus the book. If the book doesn't work, that's only on me. That is a hundred percent on me. Uh, but, uh, but, it, but both complement, And I think the last two books, those would be the ones that would be influenced by screenwriting. Um, there's, uh, if, if someone's paying attention and reads those books and watches the show, they'll see the overlap or they see how they'll notice how one influenced how that screenwriting influenced me or what we did in that writer's room and what ended up on the screen after all the, the post-production edits, how that all influenced the books uh, going forward. So uh, hopefully they both complement one another.
1: I mean, I love that you say that because it kind of goes back to what, where you learn how to, you know, play nice with others, right? Yeah. Or be a team player, yeah. right? And and that and the collaborative process is so huge. And it's really cool bringing to the table what, you know, you bring your expertise to the table and then you respect the other people for what they have. And how fun, congratulations, that the oh, Jack Carr universe is expanding on TV. Thank you. I mean, that, when that <laughs> happens, you know you know you know you're doing something right.
0: Oh, appreciate that. Appreciate that. Yeah, It was so much fun. I got very lucky that uh, both Chris Pratt, Antoine Fuqua, and then the showrunner, David DiGilio, wanted me involved from the beginning. And David DiGilio just took me in from the beginning of that process, from putting together that writer's room, advising on all those scripts, really mentored me along, knowing that I didn't come from that background. I came from the fan perspective of watching television and watching movies and reading books and noticing the adaptations and what worked and what didn't. And, and that's from a fan's perspective, but the process-wise uh, that he really mentored me along and I'm learning new things every day. Well, I guess not right now because there's a strike on and uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> we're, we're totally
0: perfect. pencils down on, uh, on the scripts until, uh, until that's all, all worked out. But uh, But it's fascinating. You
1: know, I, you know what I loved hearing? I heard you do an interview and you were talking about because it's so remarkable and cool and people should definitely take note of it that like this is your second career right and here you are succeeding and like sort of leading the charge and being fearless and being courageous but i loved hearing you say that actually it's something that you have had within you your whole life and like you 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 gave a shout out to your mom being a librarian doing all that reading and watching movies as a kid and it kind of reminds me of the charles towns of it of like reading you know science fiction as a kid and then later So you Mm. must still feel that. Do you feel like when you look back on your youth?
0: Oh, so grateful to my mom or our our parents for not just encouraging you to read, but making it a natural part of our life. And there's difference between trying to encourage and figuring out a way to encourage your kid to read or whatever else, and then making it just a natural part of your day, just like anything else. I've never been a time when I haven't had an open book in hand uh, or haven't been, did I, I've never finished one and said, what am I going to read next? Who should I ask? For recommend? No, I've never <laughs> had that. I've always known exactly what I'm going to read next or my to be read pile and creating a library. Even if I haven't read all of them, well, there's a, for research, I can go to that library and I can pick something out and I can go to a paragraph and even something that I read back in junior high or high school, uh, whether it was fiction or non, um, I have all those still. And, uh, and I just, I just feel so fortunate that reading was so natural. And then I developed a love for it so early on and knew exactly what I wanted to do mm. with my life both serve my country in uniform as a SEAL and then write thrillers didn't know exactly how closely those two would be related um and then the study of warfare overlaps both mm-hmm. trying to make myself a better leader a better operator in the SEAL teams but then all that nonfiction academic study of warfare certainly bleeds right. into the novels as does the experience downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan and a couple other places all the feelings and emotions behind those things that I experience make it into the novels as well so I just, uh, yeah, I feel extremely fortunate that I knew from... I listened to that calling, I guess, is the way to, yeah. to put it. I listened, heard the call to service and then to write. And both of those were passions. And I listened to it. I didn't let anybody discourage me along the way, whether it be with a look or, uh, hey, what's your backup plan? Or anything like that. Or do you know how hard that is? Um, if I heard that stuff, I just filed it away and I uh, used it as fuel.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. And we all get to read your great book. I mean, I love Aww. your output. It's really... It's, it's really admirable.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, I mean, I get to make stuff up. Uh, I do research, but then I get to make stuff up. And if I, if I make a mistake, I can say, well, it was just fiction, which in these books, you don't have that, that option. So you are all in on this research and uh, do you have on these sort of things, do you have a deadline or is it like, Hey, I'm still doing research and this led to this and this led to this. So this book's going to be six months past when we Mm -hmm. thought, because uh, I still have to have an interview with so-and-so and and they are unavailable until this time. Or how does that, that work for you as far as uh, Mm -hmm. making these the best that they can possibly be?
1: Well, I suppose we all have our, like, you know, this is my brand or that. And one of the things is I, I never miss a deadline, you know, touch wood. But that's the journalist in me. And, uh, and I love that. Like I've never, you don't, know, there's no need to miss a deadline. Just make the deadline, right? Mm-hmm. That's in the nonfiction side of it. I get a little frustrated with the TV because, especially writing, you know, pilots and things for my own books as, as we try to move things forward into, mm-hmm. into shows, there's a, it doesn't have that same like, no one gives you a deadline right? You're <laughs> writing books. You're on contract like yeah. this is when it's due. And out of respect for the editor, you want to hand that in exactly then. And then you have to maybe give a little if they change your pub date. But but essentially I'm here to give you what you want when you need it. Mm. And TV, I have to really adapt to that because it's a lot of, you know, we'll circle back on um, such and such and people <laughs> no. get
0: distracted. And then, oh, we're at this stage right. and the lawyers are right, talking right. and then they just I mean, it is, it's very, it's very interesting. You're waiting ecosystem. for so-and-so
1: actor or you're waiting for this. And you know, that's, uh-huh. so that's just how we learn to be more adaptable. I know,
0: yeah, um, <laughs> which
1: is important as we get older, right? You want to definitely
0: <laughs> you have adapt,
1: to. adapt, adapt, <laughs> adapt, right? Yeah.
0: You, you, you have to, there's really no other, no other option. Really. Um, that's a, in for life in general, I think, but, uh, uh, and I know you can't talk about your most, your project that you're working on right now, but I hope that, uh, we can talk about it when the time is. right and I can't wait to read it whatever it might be and what are some of the other things that you want to explore dad do you have a list of things now that after you've written all these books do you have a like a folder where you're like okay these would all be great things to explore in the future I can't wait to explore that one not ready quite yet because that's at least a couple years off because of x y or z do you have a folder working with all sorts of good ideas or what are some of the things you want to explore in the future
1: that's such an interesting question. I, I mean, I think I bet you have a similar thing where you know you you have to keep your focus, you know, like mm. on that laser focus on what you're working on, but at the same time, have these broad ideas. Um, they're always they're always you know kind of in circular mm. patterns. But because I write on the same subject matter, which is always war, weapons, national security, secrets. Mm then it just seems like a natural what's in front of me becomes, Oh my God, this is what I should do. And I'm sure that you and I have this similarly, which is where, you know, you, you learn to train your brain to, to laser focus. I can't, I can't, there's too many interesting things to write about. I, know. And you, you, I don't, I don't do as well. If I'm distracted, I do much better focusing. Uh, that's why I like deadlines.
0: Yeah, no, it's a prioritize and execute type of a type of a thing. But as I'm going, I like I'm I'm thinking I'm typing away and all of a sudden I'll have a an idea Oh, for the next book or for a future Mm -hmm. book. Maybe it's five down the line. I'm I'm not sure. But I have a folder on my computer that's just for those ideas. Mm -hmm. And I just write a quick note, put it in there. uh, Or if I'm on my device and I'm not currently writing at the time and I have my phone on me. I'm juggling the kids or whatever, or taking them to lacrosse. And i send myself an email to an email account. That's only for writing only for me that only goes to a computer that is for that book. Uh, and I have a new, I get a new computer for, for each book. So I have one for business side and and everything else. And one that I try to think of as a typewriter or as a word processor. And the only reason it's connected to the internet is so that word can update. And so I can send myself emails to that address that are specific to writing. Uh, so then I not the most cost, effective way to do things but then i stack that one and i get a new one and just i start over and i pull that folder with those Mm -hmm. other ideas and i put it put it on the the new computer so i have those ideas there but the last book is that last computer and now i am starting anew so uh that's kind of how i clear clear the brain and start working on the the new project while i still have that one folder off to the side with the ideas in it that i can keep adding to or taking from as i move forward so that's uh, that's how it's worked so far up to now, that, now.
1: Is, that is the Jack Carr process. The I mean, <laughs> rise in computer sales, as everyone says, <laughs> that's what's missing. I need a different need computer for every
0: project. Once <laughs> well, again, there are more. I'm sure there are more cost-effective ways to do it. I know you can have uh, another screen pop up or cl- whatever. whatever exactly, exactly. But uh, but yeah, that's how how it works for me. But uh, Annie, I want to thank you so much for for coming on and uh, and 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 sharing this, your journey and these stories with all of us. Uh, and I hope everybody goes out and reads these books because it'll give you a great foundation for what we're dealing with today. And we'll be dealing with in the future, not just the AI and not just quantum computing and not just all of those things, but in what a government is capable of. Um, and that ends justifies the means part of it. And will just make you, if you devote the time to them, uh, just a more thoughtful citizen, which only benefits future generations and, and all of us really.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Well, let's do, it, let's do it again for your new project. Do
1: it again. You bet.
0: All right. Take care. This is Jack Carr, and I want to talk to you about Schnee's boots. If you followed me for a while, you know what a big fan I am. This pair right here is the same pair that I've been wearing for over a decade now. And these are the ones that I wear when I want to come out heavier than I went in on a backcountry hunt. So I uh, love these things. They are awesome absolutely awesome. And I have a bunch of different kinds of boots. They're pack boots. um, And you'll go check them out at schnees.com. S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com. Schnees Mountain Boots are handmade in their Italian factory located in the foothills of the Italian Alps. Each boot is made from the absolute highest quality materials available from the fine leathers to heavy duty hardware and Vibram outsoles. They only sell direct to you without the middleman markup. This means they can put higher quality materials and craftsmanship in every boot. So you get more boot for your money. They are also all backed by Schnee's industry-leading customer service and support. When you call them, you'll talk to someone right there in Montana that actually wears the boots. So be sure and give them a call. They have a lot of options out there. Find the right boot for you. Definitely check them out. If you head over to schnees.com, S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com, you can score up to 30% off your new pair of mountain boots. You heard that right. You can save 30% off any pair of regularly priced Schnees mountain boots. Use promo code JACK23, J-A-C-K-2-3. That's schnees.com, S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com. JACK23 is the promo code. Enjoy those boots. Black Rifle Coffee Company, you can help Black Rifle Coffee raise $1 million to benefit veterans through the Boot Campaign. All you need to do is grab a can of ready-to-drink coffee online or from your local grocery or convenience store. The Boot Campaign is one of the most renowned veteran-focused nonprofits in the country, working tirelessly to provide life-changing aid and benefits to service members and their families. Join forces with Black Rifle and the Boot Campaign from May through the end of the year, where every can of ready-to-drink coffee you buy will contribute to making this massive donation possible. Black Rifle Ready-to-Drink Coffee is available in several great-tasting flavors on the Black Rifle Coffee website at your local convenience or grocery store, and no matter where you are, you can fuel your caffeine fix while supporting veterans. Every time you crack open a can of ready-to-drink, you'll be making a huge difference in the lives of veterans and their families. Black Rifle Coffee is committed to serving the veteran community, and with your help, we can all continue to make a difference. Let's raise a can together to keep fueling Americans for a good cause. Check out blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose. Drink up. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. All right, first going to kick it off, Sig Hour. Go to sixhour.com. Firearms, Custom Works, and there's a P320 concierge service. So you can build a custom P320 on there. And there's a new 365 concierge service on there. As well, so you can build something and have it sent to your FFL, so very cool. Check it out once again, sixhour.com, custom works, and concierge service from there. All right, Fieldcraft Survival. I love these bags. I realize I've not talked about these bags enough. I have a lot of them, and this is a new one, but uh, all different sizes, and these things are. Solid. So, Fieldcraft Survival, my buddy Mike Glover over there, he has a recent book that just came out called Prepared. You can check that out as well. But these duffels are awesome. So, I highly recommend picking up a bunch of different sizes of those duffels. All right, Magnetactical right here. So, they are M A G N E Tactical. and this is a weapons retention device for your molly gear for your belt but check that out developed and owned by a salt lake city police officer so thank you for coming to my book signing and handing me these looking forward to checking those out and commando bond on instagram caleb daniels Awesome. I thank him in the back of my latest novel, Only the Dead. Anytime I have a James Bond question, even if I know the answer or think I know the answer, I double-check with Caleb Daniels at Commando Bond. And he linked up with me at my book signing, one of my last ones, and passed along this watch. And I won't say exactly what it is, but if you are a James Bond fan, you'll know. And so this really meant a lot to me. Caleb, thank you so much. Thank you for all your help with all things Bond and... And I sincerely appreciate this. Very cool. Follow him on Instagram, Commando Bond on Instagram. And Four Branches Bourbon. Michael Trot, uh, thank you for this bottle. Uh, I had another one that I tried already, so I know how good it is. And Four Branches Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. And right here, this is the Founders Blend. Everything on this bottle means something so instead of explaining what it all means go to the website check it out and uh, connect with these guys four branches bourbon so it's four branches.com check these guys out and uh, once again I love when people get out of the military find that next mission in life find that passion and uh, right here four branches bourbon check them out thank you so much and for all the extras as well and new west knife works look at this one this was a Custom or a limited edition run right here. Look at that handle. This is just really sweet. So this one right here, go to newwestknifeworks.com. So that one right there is very similar to their G fusion Fusion blade. This was a uh, limited edition one, 50. So I got number 12 of 50 right here. And I think they're all gone now, but sign up for their newsletter and check them out online, newwestknifeworks.com or visit them here in Park City or in Jackson Hole or in St. Helena, California, and go into the store and check out all the cool stuff that they have going on in there so newestknifeworks.com i've been using these blades for a long time now and uh, absolutely love them so check that out and steve man i got some really cool things on book tour to include bourbon honey knives all sorts of stuff um, this right here this typewriter very cool so steve heard that um, i enjoy collecting old typewriters, classic typewriters, antique typewriters, and uh, wrote me a very nice letter here. So Steve, thank you for the kind words in here. Sincerely appreciate that. And then thank you for this typewriter. I mean, this thing is awesome. And even have the instruction manual right here from back in the day. And this thing is just beautiful so I can't thank you enough really means a lot to me that you put all that thought in there to the letter and into this incredible gift so uh, so thank you so much I'm uh, glad that the podcast and the books are, are resonating and man thank you all right what else I think that is everything for today take care out there see you next time thank you for tuning in to the danger close podcast an ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union To find out more about Annie Jacobson, visit her website, AnnieJacobson.com. That is A-N-N-I-E-J-A-C-O-B-S-E-N.com. On Instagram, she is at Annie Jacobson Books, and on Twitter, at Annie Jacobson. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.